Glad to see all of y'all here today. Um, this is actually the first time that I've gotten a chance to preach on Valentine's Day, and one thing that I told myself was that if I ever got this chance, there was going to be a piece of uh, pastoral advice that I would sit and I would share with y'all. And so here it is. Valentine's Day does not have an M in it. It's not, nor has it ever been <laughs> Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day. That one's free. It really wasn't even in my notes. I just wanted that to be clear. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time here in the Word. Father God, um, Lord, we're grateful that we can um, come here and reflect on your love, a love that we can never earn, which means that it's a love that we can never lose, Father. Regardless of how bad we are or how bad we have been, we can never be disqualified from it, Lord. And so, Father, as we come and approach um, your word and we just find ourselves uh, confused in this world with what we should do, how we should steward our lives amidst all the voices that come our way, I pray that you would provide clarity, but more than just being clear, Father, I pray that you would give us hope, give us a way forward, give us a way to make sense of this life that we're in. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 12, um, we'll be back in the book of Mark. For those of y'all that have been with us since last fall, we've just trekked verse by verse through the book of Mark, and our goal has been to look at the life of Jesus to see how he lived so that it could challenge the way that you and I live and change the way that we live so that you and I can be expressions and reflections um, of the life of Christ here in the world that we live in. And one thing that you know about the world that we live in, one thing that you've seen, uh, especially in the course of the past four years, uh, un unless you've been in hiding, one thing that you've seen is this. Right now in the world that we live in, um, race has dominated the political conversation. Since 2012 and the murder of Trayvon Martin, what took place is race and the tension that exists here in the U.S. has been catapulted into the mainstream. And so when I say brought into the mainstream, um, it's not as if that tension hasn't always been here what that did was it put it in the mainstream so that nobody could deny that it's here. And what we've seen here in the course of the past few years is that it seems like every political conversation is dominated by race. I'll never forget when this took place. Um, the very first thing that I got was a bunch of questions. John, what should we as Christians do in light of all of this? And then the, que the questions quickly turned into commands. John, we should do this. This is what we should do. We should protest. We should stand up. We should do all of these things. And then the commands quickly turned into critiques. John, why have we not? Why have you not done all of these things? And what took place is this. When people see problems, the very first thing that they think is we have to take action. We have to do something. And now what takes place is we find ourselves in an election year where it's that one time every four years that everybody puts all of their eggs in the basket that this one vote that they cast to put this one man or woman in 
office is going to change our lives and the worlds that we live in. And so now what's going on is that race has dominated the political conversations and political conversations are at the forefront of every conversation that we have. Social media has provided everybody with a platform to say what it is that we should do. And if you're anything like me, you find yourself constantly torn feeling as if the main thing that said is you have to pick a side. You either have to stand firm on your convictions, what you believe that God says in his word, and sacrifice compassion, or you have to stand firm on your compassion and let go with some of these convictions that we have. And so we're constantly told that we have to To pick this side. What if you don't want to pick a side? What if it all feels like a lose-lose? Have y'all ever seen those old like revolutionary war movies where you have the guys in the blue jackets and the guys in the red ones and they're getting ready to go to war? And so what they do is guys stand on the front lines and they all load their guns and they stand there and they shoot and the the first line of guys dies and then the next guy. Guys come up and they shoot. Y'all have seen those? If somebody said that you had to pick a side, which side would you pick? None. That's the worst way to fight. But it seems like in this world that we live in, especially as it relates to the political sphere and what we should do and where we put our hope in, we're constantly uh, told that we have to pick this side. From a young age, I'll never forget before I became a pastor, um, I was a middle school teacher at a private school um, with a, a, a bunch of rich kids that were at this school. And um, it was 2008. And I come in the day after Barack Obama was putting off office. And all of these kids kind of walk into the, the, the school. And I'll never forget this, this one kid that I taught. Um, he came in and he said, this is a dark, dark day for our country. You're 12. What do you know about any of this? All that he knows is that somebody came in and told him that he had to pick this side, that he had to choose. How do you and I navigate our lives in this complex political world and sphere that we live in where it seems like there's this line drawn in in the sand. How do you and I relate to a government that's unjust? Or if you don't feel like it's unjust, you can at least admit that it's been severely handicapped when it's come to rightly exhibiting justice, not just passing the not just in the past four years, but in the past 400 years. How do we as Christians respond faithfully? The answer is not that we just agree with all all that goes on. The answer is not just that we oppose the order and structure and the way that things are set up. 
The answer is not that we're just apathetic and we keep our hands off and we don't care. How do you and I navigate in this crazy stream that seeks like it wants to divide us, especially in a church like this where politically, look around you and you can probably assume that we are all over the map. How do we do that? And I think the way that we do that is we turn to God's word. And one thing that we find out is this. Jesus found himself in the same scenario. And what he's going to do is he's going to share, share, share with us truth that not only provides a way forward, but it challenges all of the presuppositions that we have. If you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 12, and we'll start reading at verse 13. And it says this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring to me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, well, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let me give you a little bit of context so you get what takes place here. Jesus, in the last week of his life, has found himself in the temple. And what takes place is, uh, in this one day, Jesus is going to be examined by all the religious leaders here of his day. What's going on is Jesus just got done telling this story to the Pharisees. And it was this story of a guy that that owned this vineyard. He owned it. And he put folks as landlords here to take care of it. And this guy sends and tries to get fruit from his own land, but the guys that are landlords don't want to give it to him. So this great guy sends his son and says, well, maybe if I send my son, maybe they'll turn from their ways and hear but what they do is they say, well, now he sent his son. If we kill his son, then we can get all of this stuff that we wanted. And Christ says, look, the moral of the story, he's not trying to hide it. What he says to them is this. The person that owns the vineyard is God. The person that murdered the son is you. You need to repent. Jesus speaks very, very harsh words. But I want you to know this. Hear this one thing about Jesus. Jesus speaks very harsh words, but they're always meant to heal us. They're always meant to change the course of our lives. Jesus doesn't speak harsh words to us in order that he would condemn us. He speaks these harsh words in order that he would correct us. Jesus is like a surgeon. A surgeon is going to wound before he heals. 
Everything that's painful is not problematic. If you live your life that way, you're going to hate Jesus. Because he doesn't come and mince words. He doesn't hold back punches. He says things how they are, not to condemn people, but that they would change. That's always the way that it's been. Where God wants to punish people, do you know what he does? He just does it. When God wants people to turn from their sin, he gives very, very harsh and precise words in order that they would repent. Everybody that speaks harsh words to you is not your enemy. Don't live like that. Every child, if you gave them the the choice in between, hey, you're really, really sick. You can get a quick shot in the arm or you can die a slow death. Every child would choose a slow death because they're so afraid of the pain. They're so afraid that things hurt. And you and I are the same way. And Jesus comes here on the scene and he doesn't mince words. He speaks very, very harshly. And so here's what those words can do. When somebody tells you that you're wrong, it can either cause you to repent and to turn from your sin, or it can cause you to bring reinforcements. The Pharisees, what they did is they brought in reinforcements. And here's what makes this so odd. Here's what makes it so weird. It says that they came with a group called the Herodians, if you know anything about this any time. And there's so much context just so that we get what takes place. The Pharisees didn't like Rome. Rome oppressed Israel. The Pharisees were waiting for a Messiah to save them from Israel. The Herodians loved Rome. Rome gave them their power. The Herodians if they found this person that was the Messiah that was going to save them, they would kill him. The Pharisees and the Herodians, so excuse me, I sound like a 12-year-old boy going through puberty. (laughs) The Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't want the same thing. They were enemies. And here we see the nature of what Jesus does. In the church, Jesus takes people that were formerly enemies and he brings them and makes them friends. But outside of the church, Jesus takes people that were enemies and they join forces because they both have the same disdain and dislike for them. And here's what they do. They tell him this. Some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians came to trap him in his talk. Their aim was to set out this trap for him. And they came to him and they said to him, look, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Everybody that speaks harsh words to you is not your adversary. Everybody that speaks kind words to you is not really your friend. He goes on and, and, and then they say this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Should we pay them or should we not? So what they do is they give them these conflicting obligations. They put Jesus in this lose-lose. If he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, it's going to make them very popular with Israel, but the Herodians are going to kill him because he's starting an insurrection. If he says, yes, you should pay taxes, the Herodians are going to be fine, but Israel is going to say, I can't believe you. This government that is oppressing us, this government that's stealing from us, you're saying that we should support them. And so what they do right now is they put him in a place where it's this lose-lose. They think that they have him trapped. They think that they're going to secure his downfall. They think that they're going to make him choose a side. But Jesus is not going to be manipulated. Jesus doesn't fit nicely into anybody's political party. Let that be very, very clear, especially in a church that's as diverse as ours. Jesus is not a, a Republican and Jesus is not a Democrat. Those boxes are too small for him to fit in. And if you spend your time trying to make him fit into one box, you're not doing anything different than what these folks here have done. And so what takes place is this. Jesus is backed into a corner where this close-ended question is going to determine his fate. He's in a lose-lose. And so what he does is he changes the question. If you ever find yourself in a lose-lose question, maybe it's because they're asking the wrong question. Question, right? Yeah, yeah, we used to play this game as kids where we would go up to folks and we would say, hey, Richard, do you still kill people? If he says yes, then it's like, dang, I know you kill people. <laughs> if he says no, then it's like, oh, well, when did you stop, right? So what takes place is there are these questions that are just bad questions. And so this group... This group starts and says, hey, you have to pick a side. I, 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 they're all. They place him in this lose-lose, but Jesus won't be manipulated. And so what he's going to do is he's going to provide us with a way forward. When we're confused and we feel like there are conflicting obligations and we don't know what to choose, I do want to stand for conservative moral principles and the things that God has told us to do. But I do want to be an advocate for justice. I don't want to pick a side and have to choose one and forsake the other. Jesus is going to step back and he's going to give us some wisdom on how we answer this question, but it's going to provide us with a whole new problem. And it says this in verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus says, y'all ain't slick. You're not going to get me. He said, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, 
whose likeness and inscription is on this. And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They want to talk about obligation, but Jesus says, you never start off with obligation. Any conversations that starts with actions, what you should do, starts in the wrong place. Ownership clarifies your obligations. Ownership clarifies obligations. Authority clarifies action. They want to say what we should do. Jesus says, who owns it? Who's responsible for it all? What takes place is he takes a step back and he asks him for this coin. In this day, in this time, there was this coin, a denarius, that on the front had the likeness or uh, image of Caesar stamped on it. So Christ brings it and he says, all right, whose is this? Who does it belong to? And they said, well, him. And Christ says, render or give back to him what's his. Ownership clarifies obligation. Um, uh, a few months ago when Richard first tore his Achilles, um, I took all of his kids to the movies. So we all get there and I say, hey, you all can pick one snack. And once you pick that snack, you own it. I'm going to pay for it for you. So all the rest of the kids get candy. Micah, his, his eight-year-old son, picks the big icy, right? The like $15 joint. <laughs> so as we sit and we're watching the Peanuts movie, the kids like share, share snacks, um, Micah shares his drink with the rest of the kids. And you know how kids are just nasty and they slobber and drink all that same stuff. So they're drinking, um, and he says, hey, I, I want my drink back. And the kids crowd, hey, Micah won't share. He won't share. Now, I could have used that time to teach Micah the virtues of sharing, but I thought that that time would be better to teach the rest of the kids the virtues of ownership. And so what I said was, give to Micah what's Micah's. <laughs> It's his. You can't make a claim on it. You don't really have to like it, but it's his. So when he asks for it back, give it back to him. Ownership clarifies obligation. So when Christ says this, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he's not saying you have to be in support of what goes on. He's not saying give him a tip. He's saying there's something that he owns, there's something that's his, and it's your job and your duty to give back to him what's his. And you would sit back and say, well, how do we know what's his? And the point that Christ makes here is this. His authority goes as far as his likeness or image is stamped. So what he says is this. Here, money, those things that he owns, the things that are his, this earthly government that's set up, there are certain obligations that they have. It is a legitimate authority. You look in the Bible and what it says is this. 
It says that God himself, God is the one that's in control. But one thing that God has done in order to keep order in this world is God himself has set up and established every government that's here on the face of the earth. Every one of here is every one of them is here because God set things up that way. They're all here because God has conferred some kind of authority on them. They're not perfect by any stretch of the means, but they all perfectly accomplish what God needs to take place in this world in order to advance his glory and fulfill his purpose. God is ultimately the one that's in control, but there are smaller governments that are set up. The purpose of those things is this, to establish and maintain order in a world where if those things were not there, chaos would ensue. Regardless of how bad you think the government of the U.S. is right now, it's better today, like, where we live in right now with what we have is better than not having anything. This is God's way to maintain order. And what takes place is it's confined. There is a realm. God says, give Caesar what's his. There's certain things that are his and certain things that aren't his. There's certain things that the government that we live in can tell us to do, and as good Christians, we should be good citizens. Taxes, as much as we hate those things. Do you know what they do? They pay to maintain order. So Nick, who is a part of this church that is a cop, and the rest of the cops, regardless of how corrupt things are, and there have been documented cases of corruption, but what takes place is that police is better than no police. Taxes pay to that end. And God says, as Christians, it's your duty and obligation to be good citizens and to give things that are owed. So what that means is this. Regardless of how frustrated you are with the way that things are right now, when it comes time to file your taxes on April 15th, cheating on your taxes is not a way for you to stand up. Cheating on your taxes is not justifiable. Cheating on your taxes flies right in the face of what Christ says to a group of people that found themselves in an oppressive government that was worse than ours, where there were no lawful means to change things. By all means, use all the, all the lawful means that God has provided for us to help change things. But don't sin. Don't do the very things that God told us not to do. Give Caesar what's his. There's a certain realm where the government has been put in place to control order. That's the clear thing. But then Christ goes on and he doesn't stop there. He says this, give to Caesar what Caesar's. 
And then he says this last point. But give to God what is God's. And we have to step back and ask ourselves, what's God's? His authority goes as far as his image is stamped. Where has God stamped his image? On everybody, everywhere. So what God did when he created the world is he created you and I in his likeness and in his image. God gave us a special capacity to be able to relate to him. Everybody. There is nobody that has taken a breath here on earth that has not been stamped with God's image. And it goes so much deeper than just the things that we own. It goes all the way down to to who we are relationally, spiritually, emotionally. And the Bible says, God says right here, Christ says, God wants what's his. You thought that your biggest concern was how you relate to the powers that be. But that's, that's clear. The laws are there. And it's in your power to fulfill and to do all of those laws. Here, when we're responsible to give God all that's his, who can stand up and raise their hand and say, I've done it perfectly? Nobody. And so we think, yo, Things are so confusing. I wish that God was just clear on what my role was here in this earth. And God provides clarity, but clarity gives us a whole new problem. Clarity brings a conviction. When God doesn't just want our taxes. God doesn't just want our time, some of it. But God wants our thoughts, our wills. God wants our conscience, the one thing that in the U.S. they can't touch. You have a freedom to think and to believe what you want. God says you have no such freedom with me. You have to believe the things that I say. God wants our love, our affection, our devotion, every part of us, our praise. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures, and I want you to just step back and think. This is not a time for you to step back and to search your heart of hearts and to find the one thing in your life that you have not provided to God. This is a time for you just to hear this and to see how, how badly we've all failed to give God the very practical things that he's called for. First Chronicles 16.8 says this, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make his deeds known among the people. One thing that God wants is your thanks. How have you done with that? Is your life filled with gratitude to God for all the things that he's done? Are your prayers filled with a deep sense of emotion and thanks day in and day out for all the things that God has provided? Or are your prayers filled with complaints, arguments, requests, and demands? If they're the latter, you haven't given God what he wanted. Revelation 4 says this, Worthy are you, Lord, to receive all glory, honor, and power. For you created all things. By your own will, they existed. How have you done with providing glory and honor 
to God? Is that the course of your life? Is that what you use all of the gifts that he's provided to you in order that you would be able to redirect the praises and attention of people onto this great God? Or have you spent your life with your gifts and your talents trying to get glory and honor for yourself? With the body that God has provided for you. Have you lived or have you dressed in such a way not to cause your brothers to stumble, but to point them towards God? Or have you dressed in such a way to garner lustful looks? How about your creativity? Have you used it, every bit of it, in order to make sure that God gets all of this? Or have you used it merely to advance in your job, to be able to get more money, to buy the things that you want, to advance your glory and your room now? What does your life look Have you given God everything that he calls for? Mark 12.30 says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Have you done this? Have you used all your mind, your heart, and soul to love God? See, here's the thing about the world that we live in. You have to keep the laws but you don't have to love the lawgiver. It would be hard if in the U.S. they legislated, hey, you have to keep the speed limit and you have to love the person that imposed it. That's an impossible standard. Who can tell me who I can love or who I should love? God can. And he's commanded that all of us love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, this is something that belongs to him and he wants it. How well has we done that? I bet that you didn't have to step back and search your heart of hearts, but it was very, very clear just how much we failed to give God the things that we should have. And thus we see clarity is not our main problem. Here's our main problem. Here's our conviction. Here's what makes us convicted. It's this. God wants what's his, but so do we. God wants what's his. God wants complete and total and utter control of our lives, but so do we. What clarity does is it replaces the ignorance that you and I have with an indictment. With the fact that all of us have fallen short. Clarity has never been anybody's problem. It's not just that we don't know what God wants from us. We know what God wants from us. We just want the same thing and we don't want to give it to him. Adam and Eve were very, very clear on what God wanted. Noah was very, very clear. Moses was crystal clear. God wrote it out. David was clear. 
Solomon, the wisest man to live, he was very, very clear. And on and on and on, Peter and Paul and you and me. There's a lot that we don't know about what God wants from us, but there is a lot that's crystal clear, and we just don't want to give it to him. Because at the end of the day, we're unconvinced that God is the best owner of our lives. At the end of the day, we're unconvinced that God, who is in control, who is all wise, who has all power, who sees the end from the beginning, we're unconvinced that God makes the best decisions with our lives. And it really doesn't take much for us to fall into the same place. Anytime that we go outside of the revealed will, the very clear things that God says for our lives, it's us saying, God, I'm frustrated with the obligation that I have towards you. I don't think that you're making the best call. I want to have a new owner. And when we do that, we don't just say that to ourselves, but when we live lives that are consumed, trying to take control of our own lives, what we tell and broadcast to the rest of the world is that God is not a good owner. He's not a good Lord. You should do what I did and jump ship and take control of your whole life. A few years ago, Donald Sterling, um, you all know that name, the owner of the L.A. Clippers, uh, what took place was... Uh, things came out, conversations came out, where there was this blatant and apparent racism. And so what took place was this one conversation was put on TMZ, and it was broadcast. And so what you had was people in an organization that weren't convinced that he was the best leader. And then you had folks all across the NBA um, and the U.S. found themselves in an uproar because they had agreed with the charges that were made and what took place was they gave him the, the boot. He could no longer own and lead that team. This is what sin says to the world that we live in. This is what every attempt for you and I to control our own lives broadcasts is that God's not good enough, God's not wise enough, God's not trustworthy in enough to really guide us. And it evangelizes or broadcasts this message that you should jump ship in the same way that I did. You know, it was a good thing when it happened to Donald Sterling because all people did was tell the truth about what he said. It's a very, very bad thing and an indictment on us when it takes place with God because anything that's said about him that would cause folks to leave and abandon him is a lie. Which is treason. Which is and should be punishable by death. Because if people actually believe the things that we say about their lives that cause them to turn from God, then we are, in a sense, facilitating them running to their death. And we're pushing them in that direction and saying, go, 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 until they wind up off of a cliff. And God wants what's his. 
So God's not going to let that persist. He didn't let it persist when Satan did the same thing, and he's surely not going to let it persist when you and I find ourselves in the same place. Our conviction is that God wants what's his, but so do we. That convicts us, that indicts every last one of us. But here's our comfort. Is, that the, is this. God is willing to sacrifice to get what he wants. Do you know that God's image has been stamped on you? On every one of us here. Do you know that God has endowed you with a sense of dignity and worth that is not shared with any other creation? And as sure as Caesar was adamant to recover his coins back, God is adamant to recover back men and women, you and me, those of us that have failed to meet his standard. We failed to give God what was his. We failed to give him our lives. God should have given us what we earned, and that's punishment for our sin, but instead what God did, under zero obligation, God didn't have to do this at all, but what God did is he gave us what was his, and that's his son. He gave us Jesus, and here's the beauty of what takes place here. Back in this day, when you were going to sacrifice a lamb, what took place was you would bring it into the temple and the religious leaders, they would have to inspect it to make sure it was spotless and worthy of being sacrificed. Throughout Mark 12, Jesus is here, and do you know what takes place? All these religious leaders are putting him in these lose-lose choices, and he comes out, all of them, victorious. Jesus is submitting himself to being given a once over by people who just want to see him dead so that at the end of the day, he could say, I'm perfect. And if he's perfect, not just as attested by God, but by people who want to find a fault in him, then it means that he really is perfect. He really is sufficient to take the punishment for all of our sins Every last one of them. Every time that we fail to give God the love that he deserves. Every time that we fail to give God the respect, the honor, the admiration, the glory. God himself sent his perfect son. So that he could get us back. We were his. We ran from him. Some of us here are still running. And what you see time and time again, I love the picture that's brought out in the book of Hosea. God tells this man to marry a prostitute. And he goes and he gets her. And what takes place? Is she goes back into that life. And do you know what he does? He doesn't just go and snatch her back, but he goes and he pays for her, and he buys her and he shows and gives 
all that he has. He gives what's valuable to him so that he could get back what's really valuable. This is what God has done for you. Because he wants you. We failed to give God what was his, but God, under zero obligation, provided us his son. Jesus dies for our sin. And God calls us all to repent from the ways that we've sinned in the past and from the ways that we're constantly running. Repent. Turn from those sins. Put your trust in Jesus. Right now, you can say, Lord, I know that I've done wrong with the past. I acknowledge that it has not been good. I acknowledge that this past week, I delved into things that I never thought that I would. But Lord, right here and right now, I'm convinced that you're yours. I'm, uh, I'm convinced that I'm yours and I want you to, to save me and to restore me. Help me to live a life where I can give you what you really want. And just like that, because of the great work that Jesus has done on our behalf, God gets back what's his. That's our great comfort. And so you would say, well, John, that's a great word about the gospel and about Christ and what he's done for us. How does that change us? How does that help me to navigate here in this world where I constantly feel torn? And the one charge that I would just give is this. When you find yourself confused because you face, especially here in this year, these conflicting obligations, what do I do, which side do I choose, don't feel pressed to choose a side. Know that at the end of the day, ultimately Christians are accountable to God. Know for sure that, excuse me, aiming to produce a Christian nation, it's not an aim that's too high, it's aiming too low. God doesn't want that. Why, why would God want a territory when he owns the whole world? Christians, regardless of the way the government is set up, are always going to be at a place where we're citizens in a foreign land. We're aliens, strangers. We have a great God and king that died to save us, to give himself for us under no obligation, and he calls us to do the same thing. So here's four quick things or a quick process or grid to use as we find ourselves confused here in this world. What do we do? How do we respond? When everybody's calling us to take action and to do. The very first thing is this. Think. Think. Before you have a conversation about obligations, think ownership. What realm is this in? Who am I ultimately responsible to? There are going to be times where the government that we live in calls on us to do things that are unjust and fly in the face of God. And it's in those times that we have a duty not to obey. In Acts 4 and Acts 5, it's clear when the government was trying to shut down people evangelizing and telling of God's greatness, Peter boldly said, 
Yo, I'm ultimately responsible to God. I fear him, not man. So there's certain things that I will not do. Dr. King said the same thing. That we're not to keep unjust laws. And do you know what he did? He didn't do those things. He submitted to God. But at the end of the day, he entrusted his soul to God. And what that meant was that he endured the consequences that came. So feel free to stand up and to protest. For us, sometimes it's incumbent on us that we do so. But we do so as those who know there will be consequences for those actions, but we serve a God that can sustain us even in the midst of the hardest consequences. Think. The very first thing is think. What realm is this in? The very next one is thank. Thank God. As we wake up each day and as we think uh, uh, about life and all the things that we have to do, let's let our thoughts of God be filled with thanks and gratitude and not just complaints and requests. So we think, we thank God, we talk. We find ourselves in a place and in a room like this where we know that there are going to be people that disagree with the stances that we have, but that shouldn't stop us from talking and hearing one another out. To feel the freedom to speak candidly and compassionately and graciously. And you'll find out that you'll be exposed to perspectives or uh, nuances that you would have ignored. And the very last thing, the very last thing is take action. I think that if you do those first three, the action that we take will be appropriate and clear and will be filled with conviction. As Christ says here to give to Caesar what Caesar's and give to God's what's God's, he doesn't... Uh, uh, what he does is he just gives us a priority. As Christians, there's somebody that owns us, not just because he stamped his likeness on us, but because he gave up the most valuable thing to purchase us back. Let's be reminded that God and God alone is the one that sets our course and our way forward. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and um, just for the great wisdom of your son, that in a few short phrases, um, he could give us wisdom and guidance on how we're to live in this life. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that at the end of the day that we're yours, God. We're not ours in the times where we try to take a hold of our lives. We make a mess of things, and that's clear. But at times that we submit ourselves to you, even though it may be painful in the short run, it always works out for our good, Father. And so I pray that we would be reminded of that truth, that we would submit ourselves ultimately and fully to you, for you're a very, very good God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.